Gavin Kerr is a mixed martial arts fighter. He's also a lecturer in philosophy at St. Patrick's Pontifical University in Maynooth, Ireland, outside of Dublin. That's where, in May, I got to attend a boldly named conference, The Future of Christian Thinking, which was the brainchild of Gavin and his colleague, Philip Gonzalez. Gavin exudes an energy more typical of a storybook pirate than a philosopher, and it makes for a compelling combination. In my Genealogies of Modernity thread, this interview is a fitting follow-up to Cyril O'Regan, who reflected on Ireland's secularization. And that's because Gavin Kerr has a surprisingly optimistic, up-to-date, on-the-ground evaluation of Christianity's prospects in Ireland. Before we get to the interview, though, two brief announcements. First, it's not too late to join the Genealogy and Tradition Reading Group, where we are reading Ann Carpenter's new book, Nothing Gained is Eternal, A Theology of Tradition. If you're interested, email admin at beatriceinstitute.org, that's A-D-M-I-N at beatriceinstitute.org, to get on the mailing list and for scheduling details. The first meeting is December 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Second, this is the one time of year when we will ask you for your help on the podcast. Of course, ratings and reviews are always a major boost. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate and especially to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please share episodes you like with friends. That has a big impact on the podcast's visibility. Finally, if the Beatrice Institute podcast has enriched your life in the past year, please support this work financially by giving an end-of-year donation at beatriceinstitute.org. Your donations support not only the audio engineering and podcast feed, but also the brilliantly edited, rich show notes and full transcripts. From all of us at Beatrice Institute, I wish you all the joy and comfort of Christmas. Now, on with the show. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. My guest today is Gavin Kerr. Do you pronounce it Kerr or Carr? Kerr. Kerr, yeah, okay. And Gavin is professor of philosophy at National University of Ireland, Maynooth. Actually, I'm not. Okay. (laughs) You're at the college. And it's St. Patrick's Pontifical University. Right. Many. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. I get that confused. Yeah. And I'm not a professor, actually. Not formally. Um, we have a different system than the States. Right. So, so in the States, I would be called a tenured professor. Here, I'm just a permanent lecturer. Okay. Yeah. Just a permanent lecturer. That, that, that's yeah. our system. But yeah, in the States, I'd be a tenured professor. Right. Okay. Super. And your specialty is... Um, really, so I'm, I'm well known. I'm best known for my work on Aquinas. Um, but I work on the thought of Immanuel Kant, I work on ancient philosophy, uh, medieval philosophy more generally, and um, metaphysics, epistemology, logic, ethics, and I do all of that. So at one point in history, it would have been 
pretty an obvious path for an Irish boy mm -hmm. to end up studying mm -hmm. Catholic philosophy. You know, James Joyce could have mm -hmm. gone that direction yeah. himself. Yeah. Yeah. But these days, at least for people outside of Ireland, it's surprising. You know, we're in a similar generation. Yeah. You're, I think you said 39 years old. 39, yeah. uh, what led you to take this anomalous path? Oh, yeah, it was strange. Um, so um, at school, sort of in my mid-teens, um, I was sitting thinking about, you know, what am I going to do for what, what are called A-levels, um, which are the sort of uh, exams we take whenever we leave uh, school at 18 and go on to university. And I didn't know what topics to do. And um, I had two teachers who were really inspirational. One teacher that I had around the age of 14 or 15, and I'd had him for mathematics all the way since starting school at, at 11. He was a mathematics teacher, and I, all I can just say, he just lived, breathed mathematics. He had a direct vision of Plato's forms. That's the sort of math teacher he was. And he managed to inspire the rest of us with mathematics. And so he really taught me how to think about abstract matters in a very sort of concrete way to kind of bring together the abstract and the concrete, which is necessary, I think, for good philosophical thinking. So my mind was already formed in that kind of way. And I was thinking about doing mathematics um, for me levels. But because I wasn't doing the sciences, I didn't want to choose the sciences, I wasn't allowed to do mathematics. So they wouldn't let me take mathematics as a subject. So I ended up doing, uh, everybody my age, they ended up doing uh, IT, sort of computers, that sort of stuff. I took history and I took religion. And in the religion class, we had a graduate of Queen's University Belfast of Scholastic Philosophy. He had a doctorate in Scholastic Philosophy, and he just mesmerized me. His name was Ian Donaldson. And um, he uh, was able to introduce me to the thought of Aquinas and the history of philosophy, and we did philosophy of religion um, in, the religious, uh, in the religion course, and I just fell in love with it. That's what I wanted to be. And I was 15 years old. I just met a lady who is now my wife at that time. So life was coming together and was making these life choices. And my parents wanted me to do IT, computers, that sort of thing at university because that's where the money is. That's, you know, that gets you the job. And talking to my wife, you know, a girlfriend at the time, I thought, you know, I kind of think of feeling I want to do philosophy, something philosophy, theology oriented. So I applied for Scholastic Philosophy at Queen's University and got in and seemed to be good at it and just kept doing it. And so that's where I am today. So you're now organizing this conference, The Future of Christian Thinking, which yeah. we're, we're sitting here in your office yeah. mm -hmm. outside of Dublin. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of big names who, looking back 20 or even 30 years, would have been the future of Christian thinking. Yeah. But what I was so delighted to see, mm -hmm. so those are the big names kind of on the, on the masthead. There are a few, a few people that wouldn't have been recognized 20 or 30 years ago when we were coming up, mm -hmm. but you've packed out this pretty big lecture hall. Mm -hmm. And my guess would be that 40% of the attendants are under 40. Yeah. And which was, you know, a bit surprising because a lot of them are here from Ireland mm -hmm. and I think the picture that many people have, especially in the United States, is that, you know, it's just a sociological fact that Ireland is quite possibly like the quickest process of secularization in yeah. modern history. Yeah. And, and yet there seems to be here evidence of some kind of resurgence of theological and philosophical interest. Yeah. How do you account for that? Yeah, Irish people like to do things in extremes. We're extremists. <laughs> we just discovered that. We like, to, we like to go to the extremes. There's no middle for us. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I think Platonism has always been popular in Ireland. It's just, it's, there's not that balanced Aristotelian moderateness. It's just, you know, the extremes of, you know, the purely immaterial and the ghastly material. 
So Irish people like to do these things in extremes. There was a certain generation of Irish Catholicism, which was very, very devout, very holy, I'd say an awful lot of saints, and their Catholicism was something meaningful to them. But what I think happened, and I think it was part of a deeper sort of you know, historical issues with that partition and independence from uh, Britain, is that Catholicism just wasn't passed on to the next generation, either through the parents or through the schools. And the reason why, I think, is because with partition and the setting up of the Irish Republic, there basically just wasn't the, uh, the infrastructure there in the country that there was with the British state. Um, so once a, once you know a former place which is occupied by you know foreign territory loses you know its colonial status, it just doesn't have that in- infrastructure. You still have the buildings and you still have kind of you know a memory of what that infrastructure was, but it just wasn't there. But there was a very strong and supportive church presence, and so the church ended up picking up the slack where the state kind of you know just couldn't at the time because it was building itself up. So the church ran a lot of the schools, and that's because uh, historically in Ireland, for Catholics to get an education, they've had to be dependent on the church, just given the, the history of the penal laws and uh, just what it was like to be an Irish Catholic for the last few centuries. So the church ran a lot of the schools, and throughout the world, the church runs a lot of the hospitals, and the church was always um, heavily involved um, in politics in Ireland, and that went both ways. Politicians were heavily involved in the church. And so to be Catholic in Ireland was simply to be Irish. That's all it was. It was to be Irish. And so whenever Ireland started to thrive and started to really, you know, take on an identity of its own and as an independent international um, nation, it started to cast off its Catholicism. And so for what, what I feel, uh, members of the state, when, when that Catholicism was being cast off its identity, there wasn't a Catholicism there in the individuals, which was strong and, you know, coherent and rigorous. And so... Identifying as Irish then no longer meant identifying as Catholic, and there there wasn't any sort of faith there, I would say, to begin with, and mm-hmm. to pick up the slack. So when another generation comes through, um, Catholicism just isn't implanted in them. The schools, yeah, they're Catholic, but what is Catholic about them? They prepare you for your sacraments. They don't exhibit a culture of Catholicism where the virtues are inculcated in the way that, say, some liberal, liberal arts colleges in the States would try to you know, bring about a campus whereby when one goes there, one's not indoctrinated with Catholicism, but one just eats, lives and breathes Catholicism and becomes just um, a Catholic in the process of learning. That's not what the schools were like here. So Catholicism just didn't have a chance to pass on to people. And, um, you know, a clear example of this is when it used to be the case that nothing, nobody did anything on Sundays. It just, there was nothing done on Sundays. Then when they started uh, doing Sunday sports, everybody went to the Sunday sports and missed mass. So uh, the Catholicism wasn't deeply ingrained. And Irish people, they can also be quite superstitious. We saw with the, the talk of the Holy Wales today, you know, a lot of the people would come along and they would leave superstitious bits behind. Yeah. That's, a, that's a deep feature of Irish Catholicism. And, you know, a lot of that superstition, which was here from pre-Catholic times. And so the religiosity of Irish people under Catholicism, when it was just a general phenomenon, was more the presence of Irish superstitiousness rather than a deeply committed faith. So now what we're seeing, so that, that all fell away, and now what we're seeing is that people who are Catholic in Ireland choose to be so. They're intentionally so. Because either because, like myself, they're just cradle Catholic, fell in love with God, wanted to be a saint, um, and have just remained that way, or they maybe just fell away from the faith 
and just came back to it in a massive way through study, through engagement, through through the Dominicans and their preaching, or just thrown through some heroic priests. And so they've become very intensive about their Catholicism. And I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of the Irish people here at the conference. There are people who are deeply engaged. And with access to the internet, with access to YouTube and stuff like that, they see the debates with the apologists. They get access to a lot of the apologetic, apologetical information. They see my PhD student, Carlo Broussard, and Catholic Answers, and it, it fires them up and they want to learn more, which is why they come to a conference like this. So the, to, you mentioned the Holy Wells and yeah. Philip Rosamond, who's been on this podcast before. Yeah. He's German, but yeah. he spent a good amount of his life in Ireland, and yeah. he he has this real fondness for the Holy Wells. Mm. I do too. Yeah. I also am fascinated by fairy rings and mm. Kludi trees yeah. and and these phenomena, mm. all of which, as you said, were, as far as we know, pre-Christian phenomena, at least pre-Christian sites yeah. in many cases. Mm. One story that people will tell, like John Milbank would tell about secularization, mm. is that by making a strict demarcation between proper religion and superstition mm -hmm. around these kinds of nature, religions, folk practices, mm -hmm. Christianity ran itself into a corner mm -hmm. where it was just going to be secularized mm -hmm. because it, it turned its back. When St. Boniface chopped mm -hmm. down Thor's oak, yeah. as a colleague of mine likes to say, it turned its back mm -hmm. on what would have been the wellspring of an integrated Christianity. Yeah. You know, what's your what's your take on that when you see these practices? And, and is that potentially a way for Irish Catholicism to, to be reborn, which which seemed to be might be what Philip Rosamond was suggesting today yeah. in his talk? Yeah. So um, when St. Patrick first came here, he integrated the Catholicism he preached with the native paganism, um, that very sort of spiritual, mystical paganism that the Irish people, they had. And so you see that with the High Cross. It's got, you know, you, you've got the High Cross with the circle behind it, and that represents the sun, and that's St. Patrick bringing this sun worship to the cross, because the true sun, which they were all worshipping as a sun, was Christ. And this is something which is just part of the Christian tradition, that um, pagans, you know, and polytheists, they worship nature, they worship the wind, they worship the sky, and they're searching for something. They're like Plato's prisoner trying to leave the cave. They are searching for God, and they're trying to find God, and you know, if you don't have the revelation, well, where are you going to find God? Um, if you're Plato and the Neoplatonists, it's in the one. But if you're just a normal person, you see these great sort of forces of nature and of reality and they're foundational for us. So obviously you're going to think there's something divine. And we as Christians, what we realize is what they're after is what Christ gives us. And so Christ transforms that spiritual experience that pre-Christians have of the world. What, what happens is that we don't deny that spiritual transcendence through which pre-Christians see the world, we direct it to its goal, which is in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so when you have these pagan practices that, that we have in Ireland and that every culture has, the goal shouldn't be to eradicate them. That's not what Patrick did. The goal should be to transform those devotions and those practices into something Christian so that the world, that pagan world, is illuminated by Christ. And this is, I mean, we, we talk about this uh, Christmas Day, you know, everybody complains, you know, well, the Christians just stole that from, you know, the, the, the ancient pagan religion, you know, the Saturnalia right. or whatever. Well, Which they is... didn't. They just transformed it. You know, that this was a spiritual practice, a devotion of the pagans. And then the Christians said, well, look, this is the true meaning of this. And they redirected. 
Yeah. So then what's your, what would be your kind of symbolic reading of the masses that have been, that were taking place during COVID at the mass stones? Because my, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that some of, so these mass stones are where Irish Catholics under British rule would go to have like secret masses right back in the 17th century. But, but that they also, in some cases were might may have been used for other kinds of yeah. sac- pre-Christian sacrificial ri- yeah. rituals. Yeah. So, so like, how would you yeah. frame that? And did you ever go to one of these masses? Yeah. Uh, so I never went to one of the masses, okay. um, but where I grew up in Belfast. And um, so I grew up uh, just a little bit outside of Belfast, um, just a couple of minutes drive. Um, a place called Hastown, where they filmed an episode of Game of Thrones and oh. the TV series Sons of Anarchy season three. <laughs> so, you know, that's my thing to think. But I grew up there. Is it like an, uh, a megalithic site? or? Uh, no, it's um, it's sort of up on the side of a mountain. Okay. And there's a, there's a glen and uh, forest and everything. Okay. Um, so it's, it's called Glen, it's called. And uh, there's a mass rock there. And... So when, when we were young, you know, there was a whole big deal, you know, about this mass rock and, you know, people just went, when, when you went down to the fields or the forest to play as kids, you know, you went to the mass rock and all and, wow. and then the local parish, you know, they organized masses at it just to commemorate people of okay. the parish. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you're right in saying that, you know, these mass rocks, um, are used, were used to avoid, um, sort of, uh, you know, to avoid the British, you know, forces. Um, and there's stories about some of the churches in Belfast, which were set up to look like houses, and the mm-hmm. altars made to look like kitchen tables and all the rest. So, but you're also correct, I think, that um, some of these other mass rocks were sites of uh, pagan celebrations and pagan worship. I've heard that. I, I don't know if I can verify it, but let, let's say that it is true. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what do I think about that? Well, um, well, first of all, if it's just a normal mass rock, let's set the pagan one aside. I mean, we are called to celebrate the mass, and you know, reticent priests um, in England as well. Um, they, they celebrate at Mass, you know, in cubbyholes and houses and places like that. And so long as, you know, the proper form and the rubric of the Mass and all the rest is followed, I don't see an issue because God gives grace sufficient to, you know, the challenges that we face. When it comes to, let's say, a Mass drop in which, you know, pagan sacrifices occurred, that might not be the most prudent thing to do. I'm not sure if it would be a problematic thing to do in itself, but it might not be a prudent thing to do. But I could sort of see that within the context of what I was saying, that Christ transforms and purifies nature, um, particularly purifies it spiritually. It redirects the sort of um, spiritual experiences that people have to him. And so in a way, you could see the celebrating of a mass, uh, one of these mass rocks, which was formerly pagan, as christening the mass rock yeah yeah directing it to christ and that would be a nice way to see it if it's permitted there could be something in canon law which forbids it but if it's permissible i would sort of read it that way that it christens the mass rock so that idea that there would be a resurgence of christian faith through you know a renewed openness to nature religions would seem to be running in almost an opposite direction than the idea that there would be a resurgence of Christian faith through a recovery of Thomas Aquinas's five ways. But that's something that you're pretty actively yeah. involved in is trying to recuperate the five ways for a contemporary apologetics, right? And it seems like when you teach these undergraduates, um, many of whom I gather are not particularly formed <laughs> in the Christian faith already, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of angles there. We can tackle that. 
I think the mind and the heart aren't separate from each other. The heart is informed by the mind. The heart is really just the desire of the mind for the good. Our minds, our intellects, are they come to rest in the true. They see the true as good and they, they direct us towards the good as, as an object of desire. So something that I was talking about in my talk yesterday is that when it comes to Aquinas and Bonaventure and people like that, they fell in love with God and wanted to be a saint. And their saint too drew them to the academic life and in being drawn to the academic life, they sought to express the truths about God the dead had come to realize and incarnate in themselves and embody in themselves. And that meant asking the difficult questions that people are asking about God, which includes issues of whether or not God exists, what is his nature, as well as how do I orient my private life of prayer to God as well, how ought I to live my life, those more existential questions. They're all part and parcel of that same process of uh, trying to become a saint. And for me, my goal in life is to be a saint. There's no St. Gavin on the calendar. Um, there's, there's no St. Gavin that I know of. Well, there is a St. Gavin this, who is a soldier saint. I believe he's a Roman soldier. Um, but uh, yeah, St. Gavin is so, there, so, there, so there's him. But my goal in life is to be a saint. And um, in order to be a saint, I, I've been drawn to this academic life. As I said at the beginning, I sort of got into philosophy, saw that it was kind of all right at it, and just pursued things from there. And God's never put anything else in my way. He's always, for some reason, kept me in the philosophical life, even when it wasn't bringing, you know, a salary, even when it didn't have a position and, you know, you're struggling to find work and you're having trouble writing articles. God didn't give me any other option but to pursue philosophy. And I always find that when you sort of listen to God and you kind of do what he wants you to do, things aren't easier, but you're just more content. Uh, we're, we're called to follow the lamb, and you're in Ireland here. Have you ever tried following the lamb in a field? It doesn't go in a straight line. It goes everywhere. So in following God to be a saint, he, he's brought me into philosophy. Um, I've been asking you know, these sorts of questions about God's existence and nature, how to live a good life, and um, you know, trying to put forth these formal responses to them, because these are the interlocutors that I have. And so I've become you know, well-known for my work on Aquinas. But I think when you bring up, uh, you know, teaching this to people. So it's one thing to put it down on paper. And I think we should do that. Um, I think people should be able to read this material and judge it for themselves. But when we engage with people, students in the classroom, I think a student can spot a mile away somebody who's inauthentic. One needs to be authentic. One can't just be up there, you know, sort of really gushing about this material, you know, and talking about how great it is, you know, and taking us through, you know, a whole paper about something when our heart isn't in it, because then our words go out, they go around the classroom, they go through the ears of the students, they come out the other ear and they come back to you. You're not being a Socratic midwife when you do that. You're, you're basically speaking at the students, you're not drawing out of the students um, what needs to be drawn out. So when I, I like to think when I present this material, the students can see my authenticity about, you know, its meaningfulness, its importance, why I think it should be important for them. And if they kind of just catch the bug if they see something interesting in it and they pursue it well that's that's my job you know that's that's what i'm there to do so that's my experience of teaching so david hart said that he asked at the beginning of his talk uh is there a future of christian thinking or just a posterity does christian thinking only have a retirement plan mm -hmm. how do you respond to that yeah so one of the best pieces of advice i was ever given for writing papers is that Today's writing is editing yesterday's work. So you always have something which you're editing and chipping away at. And as you edit and chip away at it, you end up writing more. And that's how things get written. 
The history of Christian thinking goes right back to Christ. Christ gives us the deposit of faith, and then the apostles and those that come after them, those who succeed them right up till today, we're just editing what came before. There is a historic deposit of faith that our systematic theologians figure out and they put down in dogmas and we have our creeds, uh, and that's grand, and that just you know figures out what it is we're committed to. But Christian thinking is editing our thoughts around that, forming our thoughts around that to see where we can go with it. And so I think when it comes to the future of Christian thinking, the future will always be a creative retrieval of the past to see how it will allow us to face the challenges that we are facing today. Because Thomas Aquinas is dead and buried. Descartes, Hume and Kant have all come in between. Um, If St. Thomas Aquinas were alive today, he would be engaging with these significant authors, um, theologians, thinkers that there are today. And he would do so using Augustine, Avicenna, and everybody that he uses, because that's what he did in his own day. And as I was sort of saying in my paper yesterday, don't just be another Thomas, be another Thomas. We can't just do Thomism for the sake of being Thomas. We have to try to be Thomas. Reading Thomas can help sharpen us and can help us address the questions of today. But Thomas never read Kant, whereas I have read Kant. So I need to try and figure out Kant, given that I have been convinced of Aquinas' metaphysical system. And I have to come to terms with that. And I either have to show that Kant was wrong, or there might be a creative way in reading Kant, such as McDowell from Pittsburgh, where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there may be a really interesting way of reading Kant, which is consistent with what I'm committed to with Thomism. But I think that's what we have to do today. And when it comes to being Christian, that's what we Christian thinkers have to do today, is to engage with the interesting thinkers of today from the standpoint of those of the past. So it's, a, it's very much a shoulders of giants approach, I think. And if we get rid of the giant, then we have to start all over. And we can't really start all over. I think only when only when we have come to understand and see what the great figures of the past came to understand and see, then that's when we can transcend them and go beyond them. So that's what I think of the future. In so many genealogy, theological genealogies of modernity, it seems that there was a point where Christian thinking was at an advantage mm-hmm. to where we are today. Yeah. 30 years have gone by. Yeah, maybe even a little bit more, but about 30 years have gone by since radical orthodoxy took up Foucault's genealogical method, kind of turned it against secularization hypotheses, Whiggish grand narratives, and, and even the you know incipiently nihilist accounts of modern philosophy coming out of the Heideggerian tradition. Then in radical orthodoxy, it started out that before the Reformation, we were at an advantage. And then it turned out that, you know, before the 13th century, we were at an advantage. And, and now it just seems to get keep getting pushed back and back. And, you know, David Hart took it back today to, you know, pre-Nicaea, or even pre-Augustine. Mm-hmm. And has there ever been a point at which we were at a greater advantage for the future of Christian thinking than we are today? Uh, yeah, whenever Christ was here and incarnate. I think that's where we had the greatest advantage. After that, we're just trying to, you know, follow Christ and uh, the kingdom which he built and which he instituted. Christ being incarnate was God present here at one particular point on the earth at one particular time. Mm -hmm. Um, He ascends into heaven. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit descended at Pentecost. The Spirit hasn't ascended again. We have the Spirit. So we have that presence of God throughout the church, his kingdom. So we are always going to be at an advantage. But it's not an advantage over a period in history. It's an advantage over the world. 
Um, God's mm-hmm. kingdom will always have that advantage over the world. And Christian thinkers, unfortunately, when they engage with the world, sometimes forget that, that they're in the world, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. And so I get a sense that they're not heroic in engaging with the world and they don't have that confidence of uh, well, Pentecost, of possessing mm-hmm. the spirit, um, you know, of casting it into the deep. So I think, I mean, we're always going to have, you know, sort of periods in the history of thought where Christianity waxes and wanes, mm-hmm. but we're never going to have a period in history where Christianity dies out because Christ gives his church and the spirit enlivens the church and uh, the blessed Trinity resides in every one of us through our baptism. So we are always going to have a church and we're always going to have Christianity and the gates of hell won't you know, stand against it. So in being a member of the communion of saints through baptism, our duty is to sanctify the world and our success will be our success. And we might have Christendom and we may not have Christendom. We may face persecution the way we did in Ireland. But the blood of the martyrs is the, you know, the seed of the church. Maybe God wants us. You know, maybe God wants a good sort of persecution to liven up the church. Maybe God wants um, the church to thrive. It, it, it's up to him. All we're required to do is just respond to the grace that God has given us in the individual situation. And maybe not read the history of philosophy like some grand Hegelian, you know, sort of, you know, clash of isms and mm-hmm. have to try to figure which one is at the top of the spiral mm-hmm. and which one is, you know, moving towards the middle. Maybe we should read history like that. Maybe we should just read history as the engagement of individuals, the encounter of individuals, some of which are Christians, some of which are not, trying to kind of, you know, build a society, either, you know, as Christians or either as Christians and non-Christian alike. And I think if you think of history that way, then you cease to think of it in the way that was being discussed maybe today, that, you know, there seemed to be this period of, you know, great sort of Christianity, but then prior to that, there was even greater advantage and so on and so forth. Christ is came, died, he resurrected, he ascended, he sent the Spirit. And I don't think we really need any more than that. We don't need to dwell too much mm-hmm. on the past. I think we should dwell on that more. Well, and he, and he said, unless, unless I mm-hmm. ascend to my Father, mm-hmm. uh, you won't have the Spirit. So yeah. that was, yeah. Okay, final question. Yeah. It, it became sort of scandalous news recently that um, there were only nine seminarians entering in all of Ireland last mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Contextualize that for us. So those nine seminarians were nine seminarians for diocese. So they were secular priests. They're entering a community of more than nine, put it that way. So a lot of the students you see today here walking the cloisters or seminary um, students. What we've also seen over the last few days is an army of Dominicans um, mm-hmm. in their habits. All of them students. I think there's about 14 or 15 students, and I don't even think they're all the, the Irish Dominican students, and they're, they're certainly not all the Irish Dominican priests. And these Irish Dominican students, um, they're younger than me. Um, I'm 39, they're all younger than me. You know, all young men going to be priests, preachers serving the church in Ireland. So, okay, nine people enter the National Seminary. Well, they're, they're for diocese, but a lot more men are entering religious orders, such as the Dominicans and others, and they're going to be of service in the Irish church. So that's the context there. There, there are men entering the priesthood yeah. and putting himself forth for the priesthood. I know and that. the population of Ireland is? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, several million? I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Four it's, or five yeah, it's not a lot. Yeah. 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 So it's not as big as Texas. Uh, right, right. So, yeah, I mean, we have a small population. And one of the good things to see is that men who have a calling to the priesthood are looking towards religious orders. 
as mm-hmm. well as looking towards the secular clergy, mm-hmm. because that sort of speaks to a, a thriving Catholicism mm-hmm. with different strands and different tapestries. If the only Catholicism you have is that of the secular priesthood in the diocese, well, that's that, that's great. But if that's all your Catholicism is, then it becomes quite univocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes sort of, you know, a single-minded experience of the church and Catholic life. Whereas when you have Dominicans, Franciscans, Benedictines, you know, if you like the liturgy, you go to the Benedictines. If you like, you know, the preaching, you go to the Dominicans. You know, it can enrich your Christian life. You can still live off, you know, chicken and broccoli, and that's fine. And that's could be, you know, your secular clergy experience. Or you can have the Italian dining experience, and that's with all the religious orders and your chicken and broccoli as well. And that's what's occurring in Ireland at the minute. We're getting, you know, a lot of vocations to all these various different religious orders, and it's enriching and enlivening the country. Kevin Kerr, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.